This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This podcast is made possible by the innovative team behind Peak Fishing. I use a peak vise for my fly tying and can say with authenticity that these vices are designed for optimal functionality and efficiency, all while keeping a low price point for the consumer. I suppose this could be expected by a company whose sole designers are mechanical engineers who also fly fish. Look for a list of prices and dealers at www.peakfishing.com. In today's world of technology and social media, there are few kept secrets when it comes to fly fishing destinations, but there is one that is relatively unknown to most of the population outside of Australia. I first heard of the Murray Cod only after moving part-time to Oz, and while I selfishly contemplated keeping this incredible fish off the fly fishing industry's radar, conservation efforts and a dire need of awareness saw me sitting down with guide Cameron McGregor and Dr. Katie Doyle to help educate me, and hopefully many of you, about this remarkable fish. explain to the listener that you are are tuning into anchored i'm just um i've been screaming at my guide for the last three days and i've lost my <laughs> voice screaming at him. no no i have laryngitis but i'm actually sitting here right now to really really cool people so i've got cameron mcgregor and i've got dr katie doyle it's so cool 
And the two of you, you know, you're basically married. Close enough. Yeah, we haven't done the wedding bit yet, but we're... He put yeah. a ring on it. There's a ring on it. Yeah. yeah we've, got a, we've got a house together, so <laughs> it's, it's going to be done for sure. Yeah. Well, you have more than a house together, so I've been, I've been hanging here for the last three days now, fishing with you, Cam, staying at your house. I mean, you guys really have a dialed in. This place is... Where are we right now? We're in northern Victoria, North Australia. East. Yeah, northeast Victoria. We are, our place is set on 15 acres just outside of Myrtleford in the little farming community of Mudgee-Gonga. Mudgee-Gonga. Yeah. At the foothills of the Victorian Alps, would you say? Yeah, Alps as far as Australians go. Yeah, yeah. yeah Australian Alps. There's like <laughs> ski towns everywhere. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And, I mean, a lot of people don't realize it snows in Australia. Yeah. We're not talking machines here. It actually snows. Yeah. You guys have this dialed in. Let's talk a little bit about why I'm here. Why am I here? Because you expressed some interest to catch a Murray cod on fly, which is something I've personally done since I was a kid, basically. Something that's gained popularity a lot, I think, probably the last five years. And it's definitely it's starting to gain some momentum and... Ever since we started our actual guiding operation, River Escapes, we've always offered it because I've always I've always felt fairly confident in being able to put people on a cod. They're a pretty challenging fish, but yeah, we got you one, and yeah, we did. We've seen a few. We've, we've seen a fair few others too. So yeah, yeah, yeah. and I mean, I, and I've been sick. I've been a big loser, Katie. You've been out of town the last <laughs> few days, but I've been sleeping in the bow of the boat and like dragging my feet when we had to move the route. I mean, I've been the worst fishing buddy <laughs> ever, and Cam still put me into fish, so I'm super impressed. Now, a lot of people, I mean, I'm here because I want to talk about the Murray Cod. Yeah. So when I first moved here, I did a, a presentation in um, in Melbourne, and one of the guys was like, have you gone fly fishing for Murray Cod? Of course, when someone said Murray Cod, it just automatically assumed like a cod that we have in the saltwater in North America. You thought, it, thought Atlantic cod. Totally. Yeah. And I was completely wrong. And so when I looked these up, what I saw was this badass, grow to enormous, I mean, they get to over 100 pounds, walleye-looking, just freak of an animal that takes topwater patterns, smashes your wet fly. I mean, you're fishing these huge streamers. They're super, super aggressive territorial fish. And they're indigenous. So... Katie, you're, I'm going to just kind of jump forward a bit and then I'll come back. Yeah. You are, you got your doctorate and you did your thesis on? Um, so I studied invasive European carp, um, but one of the predators of carp in Australia is Murray Cod. So I was lucky enough to spend six years with Murray Cod and Cameron joined me on that. So we pretty much got paid to catch Murray Cod and it was yeah. great. Big, big Murray Cod, so. And yeah. you guys met doing that, right? Is yeah. That yeah. It was so romantic. <laughs> 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 when you're um, making Murray Cod regurgitate carp all over you, it's like <laughs> love at first sight. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Oh, I love it. I so, love it. Yeah. Okay, so if you had to tell um, somebody like myself or somebody in North America what a Murray Cod is, can, can you go ahead and do that for me? As far as freshwater fish go, well, they're out at, as far as completely inland species of fish, they're the biggest inland species of fish we have in Australia. But like by mass. Yeah, by weight. weight yeah. And comp- only found in the Murray-Darling Basin, and Murray-Darling Basin stretches basically the whole western side of the 
Great Dividing Range, which is the mountain range which essentially runs the whole east coast of Australia. When I say the the whole western side, I mean from about mid Queensland, these those rivers start to drain south. From there, their range goes all the way down to pretty much middle of the way through in Victoria, and then across to South Australia. They're in the actual Murray River, so they've got the name Murray Cod because that's basically the, one of the real strongholds for it's the it's the, the real stronghold for the Murray River, which is Australia's biggest inland river. But in saying the name Murray is pretty pretty loose term because they're found in heaps of different rivers. A wide range of waterways, like you've seen them here in three fairly different environments. Um, we, we're pretty lucky here that we can we see them in clear water. Mm. The further the further west you go, the water gets cloudier in response to it thr- flowing through different land and soil types. And depending on where you are, there can be a lot a lot of smaller size fish. Or then, or you, like you touched on before, there's always a chance to get a fish over a meter long, which is a holy grail. Um, for all the fly or lure anglers. What does something like that weigh? Because they do get really fat. So I caught a 1.3 metre cod and it was 37.5 kilos, which is in pounds you might have to Times 2.2. 2.2, yeah. yeah. Let's say 70, 80 pounds, so yeah. It's crazy. And what about record caught? doesn't need to be verified, but... (laughs) Yeah, we talked about... So the books will say... uh, a fish of 118 kilos was caught back in the early 1900s, was it? Yeah. If I remember correctly, it was it was caught. I'm going to say supposedly, and it's people. It's basically just been written into the record books and never really been checked properly, as far as we're concerned, from what we can work out. Yeah, it was a fish of 118 kilos. Kilos. That's well over 200 pounds. Yeah, and. Caught by a railway gang off a bridge at, over the Barwon River Brewar- around Brewarrina, so a town way out west, right up near the New South Wales-Queensland border, on a, a bent bit of railway metal which was turned into a hook on a drag chain with a lump of kangaroo's bait. Yeah, so it's like a, Australians. You yeah. guys are mad. So it's a very, very Australian <laughs> story, and I think it was – the only real record of it was a newspaper article, which was published in a paper up there. So, so allegedly. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, before I start diving into the biology of them, let's talk from a fishing stance. I think that it's that they're shockingly underrated. And it's, no, no. Let me rephrase. They're not even underrated because anybody who's done it just raves about how vicious the takes are, how aggressive they are, how much they kick your ass like they they are definitely properly rated but they're just widely unknown and in a world today where we have social media and it seems like you can't even hide location let alone species it it's just shocking to me that when i post up a murray cod on the internet people are like what what is that thing are you sure it's not a big walleye yeah what what do you think's going on why do you think the whole world or why do you think such a large part of the world and the fly fishing community is so unaware of this this species i think it it might be as much a function to do with recovering populations Mm. too so these poor guys were pretty much completely decimated by commercial fishing at least along the murray what do they taste really do they taste good as far as freshwater fish go yeah they can be quite good to eat a lot of people say oh they get too fatty and things but i grew up on the murray river and yeah i ate my fair share of them i think i told you the other day but 
personally, I don't. I, I try to remember for you. I don't think I've killed one since I was eighteen. So, yeah. which is a while ago now. And then that combined, which has probably been the two biggest things, um, river regulation. So. We have an extremely artificial flow environment for these, not just Murray Cod, for all our native fish, along, especially along the, well, all, all the bigger rivers except for the ovens where we've been well, we've been on the oven system the last few days. All our rivers have got large, big, large impairments and their main purpose is irrigation, control flows for irrigation. Because we are in Australia. and yeah. I mean, I think a lot of people don't even realise that there's freshwater rivers here. Yeah. So I understand the need for water, but... I mean, how wiped out were they? I think they they don't measure the numbers. They more measure the rate of decline. So in the 1960s, um, they were catching thousands and thousands and thousands, and then it just stopped. And in, in like, nets, on hooks? Everything, yeah. However they could get them. However they could get them. A drum, yeah. a drum net was a really common way to catch them, which was yeah, just... Yeah, set lines too. Yeah, essentially a wire cage, and they'd let fish swim in them and pull the cage in. So. Yeah. That was in the 60s. Yeah. The 60s is when the massive decline occurred and they started to realise that, well, hang on, something's going on here. We're not catching the fish like we used to. So, yeah, and that's what they base their... So they're classified as critically endangered? On international... On the IUCN, so the international rating. But it's because they've measured that rate of decline rather than their actual population... So then we've got like trout cod, which is another species closely related. They've only got two breeding populations left in the whole Murray-Darling Basin, but Murray cod have a, a higher status um, for their endangered listing because of that rapid decline in their population. So how does it work fishing for them? Why is it legal? I mean, is it ethical? What's the deal with that? I think um, stocking has yeah. a massive has had a massive impact. They're, they're quite... They're quite good to stock, like they're quite an, like a resilient species. They're a hard, hardy fish. Yeah. They do quite well and they respond well. Are these, is there not, like, they're not hatchery-reared stock there. Does that affect them at all? I mean, you're the doctor. Does it? Um, yeah, it can. Um, genetic mutations, that sort of thing. So, yeah, you'll get um, really aggressive uh, fish in a population or you'll get non-aggressive fish in a population because they're just waiting for their pellets that sort of thing so yeah it can definitely affect their populations but no one's worked that out no one's researched that we don't have clear evidence of what it's doing we don't know their genetic you know we don't we don't know we don't know anything about that so yeah like in in australia we we stock and we stock and we stock but we don't take note of what what it's doing so we'll go and sample and say yeah there was like you know, no fish here, and now we've got thousands, but, well, yeah. You don't seem overly impressed by it. No, <laughs> not really. I just think there's a massive gap in our knowledge, and I don't think we should continue a process that we don't understand. Um, maybe in a lake situation where it's an artificial fishery anyway, I guess that's okay. Like, what else is going to be in that lake? But in rivers like the Ovens River, we don't know what's happening in there. That and the Paru. Yeah. So you were lucky enough to go on the only unregulated river in the Murray-Darling Basin, which is the Ovens River. Um, the other one is the Paru, but it's like a desert river, so it's pretty hard to regulate. Become, yeah. No water. It's, 
Paru is technically a Murray-Darling Basin River, but I think it's a one in 50, might have been a one in 100 year event that'll actually hit another river. That's how dry it is out there. Yeah. Got it. Okay. So the ovens, like we love the ovens, it's quite close to our hearts. In the whole Murray-Darling Basin, there's 4,000 dams and weirs, at least. The ovens has nothing. Let's ignore Lake Buffalo. It, it slightly impacts it, but it's not directly on the river. Um, yeah, and we're stocking that, and we don't, we don't understand it. We don't understand it very well at all. It hasn't been stocked with Murray Cod, though, for 10 years now. Okay, well, let's, talk about, let's talk about what we do understand, because over dinner tonight, I had, to be, I had to keep interrupting you and saying, stop, stop, stop. <laughs> I want to ask you that when we're rolling, and I've, and I've got the podcast going, so... It hit me with all that knowledge you were telling me about the biology of these fish and their eating habits and just everything. Throw it at me. Sure. So when I first started my PhD, I was like, okay, I don't really – like I'm from the East Coast. So we don't get Murray cod over there. I really want to understand this species. Um, I wanted to know what they eat. And every paper that I read, every book was – they are a generalist predator that eats anything. And I'm like – wow, that's really not helpful for me to understand their diet. Like how could a little fish and a big fish just eat everything? That if they ate everything, well, then why are there other fish in the system? That does not make sense to me. So there were things like there's a, a galah, so an Australian bird, Australian parrot, with a jam jar on its head that was found in the gut of a Murray cod and things like that. And I'm like, well... Clearly, that's not natural. <laughs> why, why people? It sounds maybe like someone was fishing with it. I don't know why, but yeah, things like that. And I'm like, this, this, is, this doesn't make sense to me. So I actually did my research on their diet. So I was out there making Murray cod vomit. It's not a pleasant thing. How, how do you do that? I'm sorry. So you get um, you get your fish. So let's say a 50 centimeter fish, and um, Cameron actually invented this little I didn't invent it no I was taught how to do it refined it for me (laughs) so you get a um, bilge pump for your I'm going to say the wrong thing a bilge pump so a lot, lot of people would be familiar with the little pressure bulb you use on an inline oh yeah yeah and your outboard like a turkey baster yeah, 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 similar, yeah. But you need quite a lot more pressure than a, than a trout. That's what you use oh, to pump okay. your pressure up on your outboard yeah, fuel. Yeah. yeah, so that with one length, one length of, I should say, please just don't go out and do this. Like yeah. it, when we do this, we've got fish pretty heavily sedated. Yeah. They're not just any fish you just pull up out of the water. I'm just going to pump it full of water and make it mm-hmm. cough up stuff. And then depending on the size of the fish, you use different size tubes to match the back of their gullet. So you'll insert that tube in the back of their throat, gradually take up the pressure, the water pressure, in the and just pump their gut cavity. And you, you basically you start to feel the the fish's belly become pressurized, and at that point, you can remove the tube from the back of their throat, give them a little bit of a squeeze. You kind of massage it out. They make this weird gurgling sound, and next thing they just cough up everything they've eaten. <laughs> so that's it. So it's not being sucked out in the tube. They're actually no, coughing it they're out. they yeah. yeah. So it's... And you guys fell in love during all this? Yeah, definitely. Very romantic. <laughs> <laughs> you had to teach me how to do that. I'm like, wow, what a skill. <laughs> so, so, yeah, that was for small ones. Um, when I was getting, like, my meter plus fish, I was pumping and pumping and pumping. I'm like, this is taking so long. Like, you need, like, liters and liters of water. 
it's not working. It ha- just so happens that the so their esophagus here um, was exactly the same width as my arm. So it was a lot easier for me just to stick my arm in their guts and pull out what was in there. Oh my god! And it was like I was nice. I was gentle with them, and I wouldn't <laughs> recommend that either. But yeah, that's what I ended up doing with my really big fish. And yeah, you you grab something and you're like what is that? That's disgusting and it's all over your arm and then Ew. if you pull one out, the rest comes out. So what's what's the grossest thing besides a parrot with a jar over its head? How insane. <laughs> so I've got a story and Cameron's got a story, so I'll tell my story first. Um, when I was doing a lot of my sampling, I was at Lake Moela and there was a mouse plague on and cod love mice. Right. So they swim across Moela and um, – I don't know why they swim like hundreds of meters just across the river or the lake, sorry. And um, I was, I was just like looking in their mouths, and there was just like a tail sticking out, and then it'd actually block off. Like I'd have to pull that tail out and then squeeze the rest, and it'd just be like pop, 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 just mouse after mouse after mouse, what popping out and just mm. fluff everywhere. It was pretty disgusting, but I reckon your story is better. <laughs> Yeah. But that says a lot about them <clears throat> that they're eating mice. Like they're coming up on, on top on water top. and smashing yeah. them. Yeah. That says a lot about a species. Yeah. Go ahead. Um, rather large fish one day. I, I can't remember exactly what we were doing. So I used to do a lot of electrofishing my days with, with fish, different fisheries departments. And um, yeah, I can't remember. It was, it was a big fish, well over a metre. And I think. May have been collecting fin samples or something for DNA. It's, it's not, doesn't really matter. But I had this, I was sort of supporting the weight of the fish because that's well, that's a key thing that I want to hear. Let let everyone hear too. If you pick one of these guys up, please support their belly because it's it's important. If you hang a fish up by its bottom jaw or anything, you might as well you've killed it. Oh, okay. So please, yeah, to support the fish's body weight, and that's what we were doing. We had this. We were supporting this fish's body weight. I was at the head end, and. It, proceeded to make this gurgling sound and I smelled it first and then by this stage I sort of had my head turned up and nostrils round truly flared and I'm just like what is and I've got, I've got a very strong stomach and I just proceeded to dry reach and look down this fish coughed up a whole cormorant like a yeah you know like a full-size one yeah yeah a rather large bird and <laughs> That is the worst possible smell. I've smelled a lot of stuff and particularly dead stuff and this thing, oh, it was rank. <laughs> Do you think that they that they would eat that alive? Yeah. Swimming? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, you were studying their diet. Do they eat things that are already dead or are they going out of their way to, to kill things and then eat what they've killed? So I think um, the ambush predators. So you probably know ambush predators. Um, your pike are pretty good. Um, example of that for overseas they'll sit and just wait in a snag and um and wait for something to swim past and then they'll just smash it so if it's a cormorant if it's cheese on a hook and it comes past they'll get it and remember our waters are quite um murky so it has to get quite close for them just to smash it so yeah if something goes past there's always the exception as you've seen though there is yeah, well, yesterday I we were in a boat, and I'd made a cast, and I was just kind of sitting there, and my fly was close, and we watched this fish, and we, like, hovered up to it, and he was right on it, but he was kind of taking his time, and then he just 
It was so fast. You just sucked it in. Yeah. And then, you know, there were other times we were fishing in the lake and at nighttime and they were smashing the surface. I mean, it was, it was frightening how, how hard they hit. Yeah. So I can see how they definitely can't be put in one category, but yeah. So this is not like they found a cormorant and they, and it ate it because it was dead in the snag. I mean, it, no. you've seen them take baby swans, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. Swans, baby ducks, ducklings. So they're kind of like a muskie. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so what about the name cod? Why is this so confusing? It, I, I don't know anything about Latin names or any of this, you know, origin, but the cod in, in the Pacific, is there anything familiar or anything similar to... It's not the Pacific cod. It's the um, coral reef cod, like your... Potato cod. Yeah, like, like those sort of things because they have that... Like the groupers. Yeah, the grouper and cod family. Groper, grouper, cod, they're all like a big family. they got really big mouths. They kind of just cruise around the reef and just sit there and, you know, smash something. And, yeah, so I think that's where they got their name from, not the... Oh, okay. So it's not a a biological relation. No. No, it's the same with our perch. We couldn't really come up with a better name, so we're like, well, those things sort of look like perch. (laughs) Because no one's seen what, you know, like we've got fish that no one's ever seen. So we're like, oh, that kind of looks like a perch or a cod and... Let's just call it that. Why not? As from the Murray, let's call it that. So I don't think the names are very original. Biologically, what's it most similar to if you had to look at another species of fish? Yeah, so there's a group of fish in Australia, well, in the Southern Hemisphere, called the Pisichthyids. There's apparently a Pisichthys genus in Argentina and Chile, but they haven't done the genetic analysis to prove that they're part of the Pisichthyid family. So, yeah, I'm not sure what their classification is, but currently they are Pasichthyids. Ignoring that, there's probably five five of them in Chile and Argentina, and they're tiny. They're only about, I don't know, 15 centimetres. Um, over in Australia, you don't get Pasichthyids anywhere else. We've got about 10 or 11 Pasichthyids, um, and, yeah, that's it. You won't see them anywhere else in the world. So, Wow. If someone wants to come fishing for them, this is it. Okay, so back to your thesis. So you decide you're going to do this on their diet. Yep. Then what happens? So I really struggled with finding information on what they were eating besides the silly stuff that I'd heard. I was getting really frustrated. People were saying apex predator and general predator. And I'm like, what is that? And it gets you so irritated. Yeah, you're you're like, just don't throw these silly words in. You're not an ecologist. It's not an ecology word. Let's get rid of that. (laughs) So I was like, okay. Simple way to solve this, let's see what they're eating. So I had cod of all different sizes, so 20 centimetres to like a a metre 30. That was kind of my biggest sort of fish. Um, I had them in tanks doing analysis in tanks and seeing what they were choosing, Um, and then I was out in the field all the time making them vomit. So I found that small Murray cod were eating more like crustaceans, so yabbies, which are called... Yeah, so like crawdads for okay. North American yeah, people. Yeah, so we call them yabbies. Um, yeah, like your crayfish. They only start to eat fish when they get probably 60, 70 centimetres. And then when they get really big, they start to eat really big fish, like like our invasive carp. They're about 30 centimetres, 40 centimetres. They'll start eating that when they're metre plus fish. That's when you get like the cormorants and the birds and the the ducklings, when there's really big fish. So oh, turtles. Turtles, turtle a yeah. Fish one day. 
Yeah, and you'll see it like in their belly. It's just like a solid, it looks like they've swallowed a plate. (laughs) And it's just a turtle. But you won't get the little ones eating turtles. You will only get the really big cod eating the, you know, the big stuff. And that's when they start to eat off the surface, when they're a bit bigger. So, But, I mean, it's a huge part of their diet, carp then? Yes, now it is, yeah. What was it before carp? At least up this end of the river system it is because... Our small, our small native fish communities are essentially non-existent compared to what they were, say, pre-European settlement. Mm. And the further you go down the river, the closer you get to the south of Australia. Like using the Murray as an example, basically the drier, arid areas, and that is the same up north. Have a, a fish called a, a bony brim, um, which is not a brim. No, <laughs> gizzard. but it, it looked like a brim, so they called it. Yeah, a brim. it's a lot like a fish called a gizzard shad that you guys have got. They're really shiny and they're quite a pretty fish. Tiny, tiny little mouth, but really shiny, like mirror almost like. And yeah, like a herring. They call them yeah. inland herring or freshwater herring, um, but they're quite deep in the body. And yeah, that's probably what they. Yeah, so they're a very important part of their diet where they're found. And up this way, yeah, carp are quite an important part of their diet, at least for the bigger mature fish. The smaller fish, like Katie said, like yeah. stuff like shrimp. And, and what about um, maturity? How When do they start uh, reproducing? It's a hard one. Someone cause... will probably ring me up and correct me with their latest work and things, but the last lot of work I was involved in, I'm not sure if there's been any more done since then, but way up in the northern part of their range, so up in, up in Queensland and then into northern New South Wales, they were maturing as early as 40 centimetres in size, so quite, quite small fish. The further south you go, slowly that size increases. So as you come into – so the sexual maturity size. So as you come further south all the way into Victoria, some fish mightn't be mature even at 60 centimetres. And then how does this work, though? I mean, do they you, – you had mentioned over dinner, and I, and I stopped you, but you were talking about – They'll have two different territories. Can you elaborate on that? Yeah, so it's really, really rare. So the Maricot are the only species that are known. There might be something else in the world, but they're the only fish in the world that sets up two territories. So most of the time, like throughout the year, it'll it'll set up a territory, defend it, feed around there. As soon as it gets to its spawning time, um, like over Australian summer, it'll move upstream well, sorry, the male will move upstream. He'll set up another territory up there, defend that, wait till his female comes, she'll lay her eggs. She goes back downstream and he'll sit with that for probably, what, a week, two weeks, um, and then he'll go back to his territory downstream. So that's really rare. Wait, he stays with the eggs? Yeah, yeah she's... Off she goes. And he'll, then yeah. he... Yeah, yeah. How do I find one of those? I yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> they'll, sit, they'll sit there, they'll fan the eggs, they keep the keep the eggs auctionated, so by a fan, I mean, the footage is shown, they'll use their peck fins and or their tail, or they'll clean the nest, Any if there's too many, like a lot of eggs will die. The really crazy thing is, if anything alive comes near that nest, it gets the boot, either gets eaten Actually, I'm pretty sure they're not feeding a lot of the time. They just poof, they'll yeah. kill it and just reject it, get but it out of there. it's so aggressive that they'll probably kill it. Like I've watched them in a tank. So I've got little little cod and I'll put a carp, which is similar size to that cod, and they don't want to eat it sometimes. 
they'll just smash that cup, that poor little fish. And I'm not cruel. I didn't like this, but they'll smash it into the glass because they just don't want that in their territory, which is why we have the closed season. Closed season for Murray Corden is September 1st through to the December 1st each season. Oh, because it'll just be too easy. Yeah, and it it is. Coming up, Cam and Katie opened up to me about stocking concerns and the future of the Murray Cod. Again, just a quick thanks to Peak Fishing for making this conversation possible. Peak products are manufactured and assembled in Loveland, Colorado in the USA. They offer a wide range of fly tying vices and accessories at great prices and can be found at www.peakfishing.com. Now, do they go back to that same spotting habitat every year? They should. It's not well studied because we've got so much river regulation here. It's really hard to know whether what we're seeing is actually natural. Um, but in like a, a dam situation, like in a hatchery, yeah, you, you set up a little nest box sort of thing for them and they'll always go in there. So Wow. So how many years will one of these live to? I think the oldest fish that got aged that I can think of was a fish that was that came out of the Murray down lower. They now sure if it was hit by a boat or something. It was quite a large fish, and it was verified at 49 years old. What? So what are they doing, just looking at the otoliths? Otoliths, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Mm. And I mean, they must get super, super tuned in. It's de- mm. smart, really. Yeah. It's pretty debatable, but that that fish, there's a lot older fish out there than that, too. So let's talk about fishing for them. Cam, you are now a a guide here. You started a guiding operation. It's called River Escapes. Yep. People can find you guys at? Riverescapes.com.au. And our social media on Facebook and Instagram, River Escapes, and yeah, at, at River Escapes on Instagram. Why did you decide you wanted to be a guide? After what, three and a bit years at Narandra for New South Wales Fisheries, so after university, so I was a fisheries researcher up there, a technician, so basically in a nutshell was an ideal job for me because I was paid by the government to catch fish just about every day of the week and travel around and use every means possible at my disposal to, to get fish for different projects and things. And I've always been a passionate fly fisherman, uh, predominantly for trout since I was a, a young Young guy. Well, I started fly fishing for Murray Cod back home in Coral on the Murray when I was about 16. But, yeah, moved down to down to Snobs Creek down there near Lake Eildon. We used to have a, a, a quite a good fisheries research program down there, which unfortunately, like many research programs in general in this country, got folded by government. And after about two and a bit years, and what I was doing, I was working for some quite a, a well-known operation down there, and good friends of ours, Golden Valley Fly Fishing Centre on the weekend. So I, I originally went in there just because I was just fishing mad, obviously, and just thought, just ask you guys want someone in the shop on the weekends while most of you guys are out guiding, and then yeah, good mate down there now, Anthony's like, well, he gave me my start in guiding, so yeah, I owe a bit to those guys for sure, and. Yeah, then we moved when my was yeah working for those guys on the weekend, and then we well by this stage Katie and I were together because that all happened at Snobs Creek and beautiful love story, <laughs> and um, yeah we moved back up this way because my research program they will they said oh you look you, you got a job mate but we're moving you to the coast I'm like yeah so that's really I can really tell the government supporting 
this research program, which is based in fresh water. So took a job with Golden Murray Water back up this way and helped manage the water storage for five years. Um, yeah, and we started up our business back and operated it like I did for the guys. Well, I guided on the weekend whilst worked Monday to Friday. And, yeah, it was just getting a bit messy and... I'd use all my leave from the other job to do the guiding and so I bit the bullet and, yeah, it's what I want to do and, it's, and well, I've done it for long enough now, I feel, yeah, it's the right move. So love nothing more than showing people around the local area for all the cod or trout. What percent of your clientele are coming to fish for trout versus cod? Well, 80, 90%. Yeah. Trout. Yeah. What do you think the reason is for that here in Australia? People just visualise fly fishing purely as a trout just for trout yeah they do down here don't they yeah and and i think also like you get we get a lot of beginners and murray cod for a beginner like yeah yeah Yeah. it's pretty full on we're the first ones to admit that it's you don't want to do this if you haven't got your head really well you haven't got your head how to cast a fly rod will you tell the listener why so we throw quite large flies, and to do that we need rod weights, sort of minimum eight weight. Typically we throw ten. If you only had one rod, you'd use a ten. I have dabbled in heavier rod weights, but it's, yeah, I don't care how good you are. A 12 weight gets pretty tiring after a while. So 10 weight normally with a lot of our favourite, well, probably the favourite line, and a lot of people in this country sort of all come to the same conclusion, something like a, a Rio outbound short, which is a, and with the intermediate tip, like we've mucked around a bit with lines the last couple of days and it seems to be a really good line for the job and yeah look you can throw half a chook on that line quite easily um, a chick is a chick is a chicken for those of you who don't yeah, know so it. a really big fly um a lot of flies tied on big hooks so six o six o hooks would be quite a, t- a typical size for a, a single hook fly i personally use a lot of um articulated flies in my tying not it's not for a, a double hook up rate with the two hooks it's more to just to get a really good action out of the flies and that's i draw a lot of inspiration well i've done a lot of lure fishing as well i'm happy to say that but it's definitely transferred a lot into my fly fishing so so sometimes like i remember the other night i pointed out a cricket to you on top of the water at my whale and i said if we get a heap of crickets on the water tonight you listen to these fish and so they we talked before about mice plagues and things. They're no different to other fish in that. I think they'll take advantage of whatever the most abundant food supply is at any time. Any other reason why it's not as popular here? I think there are a lot. Well, they are. I'm the first one to admit that you don't get them every day. You've got to work for these fish. And we think we've got a pretty good catch rate with them now on fly, but I'm, yeah, I, I, I can't say, look, you're definitely going to catch a cod, whereas trout, yeah, it's pretty... If you don't catch one, there's something drastically wrong, or the river's completely blown out, or you're at least going to hook them. And but these fish are indigenous. It's so yeah. cool. I mean, yeah. the English did not introduce these. It's so it's just amazing. Yeah, dead right, yeah. and mm-hmm. they are something special. Well, yeah. I mean, you go to Argentina for Colorado. You go to, um, you know, you go peacock bass mm-hmm. in the Amazon. There's all these places you go for this kind of fish. And Australia has got the Murray cod. Like, when do you think people started really? paying attention to these fish when if you were to say that they've been popularized what year do you think it would be on fly or just in general on fly fly. probably in the last look i've done it personally since i was about 16 so i'm 31 now so you can do the maths on that but 
I remember there was a few magazine articles, there was a few keen guys, especially sort of up the New England area of New South Wales, which is a really, really good area up there as well for them. And then I'd say last five years, it's gone, sort of become more mainstream. And I think it it is a sort of a function, possibly of social media. But I think too that people are looking for the next sort of challenge. And these fish, to some people, are... are are more accessible than trout as well. A lot of people live along these inland waterways for for work or, well, generally for where they, they live there. The recovering will increase fish populations from restocking when these fish being a more viable target. And I use the Murray River as an example. When I was a kid growing up there, we fished for them with bait. That's how we, we targeted them. And I can remember we'd be lucky to see one or two fish every few months religiously fishing for them and now you're more likely to catch a murray cod than probably any other species of fish that is because of the stocking though yeah because of restocking okay we're about to dive into this yeah this is an interesting conflict then because i know that you katie are not excited about the stocking thing Mm. and you cam are about to basically make your livelihood off of I mean, trout, of course, but being a guide, you obviously have to rely on your fishery. Yeah. And and just for people who don't know you, you really do give back. You're super concerned about the environment. You actually put, I mean, you actually go to fight for these causes. You are the sort of person we want behind environmental issues. So kudos to you. But you're about to make your livelihood off these fish that are there because of stocking. And you are not a fan of stocking. So is there a dilemma here? What's the compromise? Talk to me. What's the rationale? I think um, the reason I'm against jockeying as a whole uh, for Murray Cod is we don't understand what the consequences of our actions are. I, I understand that for a population of an animal to come back, we need to reintroduce it. But we can't just focus on just stocking hundreds of thousands of fish. There's a reason these fish declined and I know it's commercial fishing and um, overfishing and all that sort of thing but there's a reason they're not breeding there's a reason they're not surviving there's a reason their eggs aren't viable stocking fish is completely just masking that we don't know how many natural fish are in the population like that are naturally breeding we don't know genetic influences we don't know if our hatchery reared fish are um, more aggressive more docile on the other hand we don't know if we're losing our genetic strains that are resistant to, to the situation that they're in now. So, yeah, it's it's not that I'm against stocking. It's that we don't we don't know what we're doing. Like, it could all collapse because we've introduced this genetic strain that's not appropriate for the system or, you know, like, but we don't know. We don't know what's going to happen from it. I'm really big on fish habitat. Like, I think, obviously, for something to live, it needs to be in somewhere that it can survive and it can breed. I think stocking just covers that up. It's just, oh, we'll just put fish in, they're growing, that's okay. The habitat is just getting degraded. Um, You know, we've got cows in the river, we've got, you know, dams, but I guess we have to. We've got, you know, willows and introduced plant species where they shouldn't be. We've got massive erosion. We've completely altered the flows. So, you know, where where it should be really fast-flowing, river system it inundates floodplains for months and months we don't get that 
we're an arid country. It shouldn't inundate for months and months. It should, should inundate for two weeks and then retreat. So these poor fish are just like, what the hell am I supposed to be doing? And they just, stocking for me is, if it has to be done to save a species, that, that's okay, but I want to know more and I want to know that it's the, the most appropriate action. And at the moment I'm not convinced that it is for, to save the species. Maybe it's improving the fishery. Yes, I can see. I can see an outcome and I, I can see that, that it gets people out in the river and I love that. Like I love that people from Melbourne, people from Sydney come from the big cities and they go fishing and they're like, wow, I'm in the middle of nowhere, I'm at a river and they get that connection and they start to love it. But at the same time, I just want to make sure that we're doing the right thing and, and that it can last forever. So, Well, who's the... I mean, who's really spearheading this right now? Who's the Marie Cod expert in Australia? In the world. I mean, I'm assuming it's in Australia because if there, if that species is only here, what scares me is this, okay? Australia, me now living here, I see how small things are here. I mean, you guys look like this huge continent and it looks so big and intimidating when you're in North America, but it's actually really small. Mm-hmm. Everybody knows everybody. My fear is obviously someone in Canada is not spearheading the Murray cod issue. Yeah. So it's going to be someone here. And if you did your thesis and only started to figure out what they were eating in 2000, 2009, 2010. Okay. That yeah. tells me that that's a pretty new focus. If you're telling me that fly fishing for them is really only the last five years. And I say social media is a huge part of it for sure. Just from what I've seen in the last three years, I'm going to say this is all pretty new. Yeah. Is it you? Is it you guys? Who are the people? Who are they? I think we've contributed. Yeah, um, we know. Every state's got their sort of their gun scientists, and they've got their own sort of person. But in saying that, how much influence those scientists can then have on fisheries policy is very mm-hmm. debatable, if any, a lot of the time. So. A lot of the time these restocking meetings are held between concerned angler groups and and fisheries managers. And I'll be frank, there's no data behind anything. Um, Australians have a, you've, I've, I've said this to you, the she'll be right attitude, which is, yeah, she'll be right, mate. And unfortunately that carries through in our society as a whole and, and it's it's alive and well in the fisheries game and when I say oh the she'll be right attitude most anglers are happy if they open the paper every now and again and oh look at that my local lake just got stocked with 10,000 cod 10,000 golden perch whatever it is and that's as connected to their fishery as they are apart from when they actually then go out and fish for those fish and that's where a lot of their license fees go too so you pay your your fishing license, you can see where that money's going. You can see a number like, oh, 10,000, great. I paid my $6 for that to go to that number. It's really hard to, you know, like you can't see them. They're underwater. You can't say that, oh, look, we've protected their habitat. It's, it's too, The visual's not there. The numbers aren't there. So it's. I understand why, you know, anglers are like, yeah, 10,000, that's great. I paid $6 for 10,000 fish. So... I understand that that's fair enough and you've got fisheries managers that are trying to please the anglers who are paying their fees to go out to fish so you know we've created this whole cycle of a system where we, we 
yeah, we need to prove that we're doing something and it needs to be quick action and that's what they're doing. So, But whether it's a long-term goal, well, that's a different story. So It's only... Like I'm, I'm glad you asked me that question about look these these fish your livelihood. Like obviously you've got a vested interest to have free fish restock. At the end of the day, the highest performing fisheries anywhere in the world as a whole are not based on stocked fish. They're based on naturally recruiting fish. I can I can only th- really rattle off maybe five six places where I could actually say yeah there's definitely fish recruiting there and it's not being masked by restocking. Why is that happening? Well, that's happening in rivers that are severely, their flows, that we've touched on this a few times, their flows are well up and down, up and down through river regulation. They don't have a natural flow regime. It's cold water. Cold water, cold water often pollution. from cold water releases. These, they're warm water fish. They need warmer water to for, for their whole life stage. We've been here for two, well, the Aboriginals were here for a lot longer, but for the 200 years that... European settlers have been in this country. We have smashed the place, and we still are. In the last ten years, I showed you streams that have just completely just been trashed. In the last ten years, in my lifetime, and this isn't going to be an issue that's fixed by government departments. We have to get people that are actively want to be involved in their fishery. So I mean, every concerned angler that that really wants to help and we need to put ownership back on and back on ourselves and let's fix our rivers and yeah okay i'm the first one to admit we're not going to get them back to pre-european settlement but as far as restoring habitat and that's a big issue on every river i can't think of a river in australia that doesn't have some form of habitat issue and that's even some pretty remote rivers. If we've been there, we've done something we shouldn't have done to it. And a lot of the time it's as simple as restoring bankside vegetation to control erosion and things. And, yeah, if, if there's one message that I can get out over this podcast, and, yeah, that's that's me hand on heart appealing, guys. I know everyone likes to go down the river and catch a fish, but think about how you can make it better. How? How can they, how can me, how can I, new to the country, new to the continent, make it better? Get involved and don't just go off and start the infighting, which is very typical of anglers. So, <laughs> Get involved with whom? Well, pressure your local fisheries department. Pressure, pressure, well, pressure the local fisheries department for sure, but there's the default solution for a lot of fisheries departments is oh that's not our area we don't we don't control we don't control that we just look after the fish in the river so there's catchment management authorities who are then meant to do that we can't do that because we don't get enough funding well if these if they say we don't get enough funding let's work out why we're not get why they're not getting enough funding is there a Murray organization no. Or a club or anything like that? No. So there's angling clubs all over Australia, saltwater, freshwater, fly fishing clubs. Yeah, heaps of different clubs. But because everyone does something a little bit different, people don't, generally don't work too well together. And then, well, that's, that's, yeah. But there's, you know, in North America, there's steelhead organizations who move mountains and salmon organizations who Trout, Trout Unlimited. Okay, yeah. you know what I think? I think this is a podcast that archives history 
And I think that this should be the beginning of a Murray Cod grouping. So I'm going to leave that with you guys. Yeah. Yeah, we're definitely um definitely keen, I think. It's it's from from two different perspectives. Cameron's growing up with something you know, this species it's in his heart that way. I've learned about something that I find amazing and I love it and the two of us together are like holy shit, what is this? <laughs> Let's look after it. So, yeah, definitely want to but so you can call it, you could easily call it, like, yeah, the Murray Cod Conservation Group or something. But Absolutely. The facts are that by looking after, by just having it, just trying to look after one species, you're actually going to have flow-on benefits for every species in the river as well. So, yeah, I personally think it should be rivers as a whole that need to be adopted more by anglers. Is there not a rivers organisation? No. What? There's nothing. There's there's a few like Australia River Restoration people. They're more, um, but there's not like a an actual organisation who. There's a non for profit, yeah, called the Australian River Restoration Centre, but it's more one woman was like, let's get everybody in Australia talking about rivers, and she just talks to you know like local community groups and brings them all together to see what they're all doing. But I don't think, like, like I'm thinking the models like Trout Unlimited and that sort of stuff, there's nothing that could come close to replicating that here. So, Okay, well, it's time. So. Yeah, look, there's a lot of good work being done, don't get me wrong, and generally by concerned local community groups and things. And But even unfortunately, and I know everyone has the best interests at heart, but most of your local angling clubs all they want to do is restock rivers because mm. it's it's that's the that's a salute to them that's the solution to them just being able to being able to catch more fish but yeah we need to get our rivers back where they're looking after themselves mm. feels like i cannot escape this topic everywhere in the world i go yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> um, on a later note you guys now have got this new home and you're really diving full time into the guiding operation and Katie you're the most underutilized doctor I've ever met in my entire life. <laughs> so you cook your guests breakfast and tell me about your operation. We're set on beautiful home here on 15 acres with accommodation for up to four guests. We, uh, yeah, we chose our location pretty carefully as far as where within, well, the, the cod fishing is literally just down the road. Trout fishing is just down the road, but all our good fishing is within an hour, slightly over an hour from here. So that's the big water, big water destinations like Lake Mowala where we went the other day, the Murray River's over there, and, yeah, then I don't know how many. We've got a few. I know exactly how many, but we have a lot of different trout streams, rivers from tailwaters to streams way up high in the hills that we fall we'll drive into and show, show our anglers. And, yeah, the Murray Cod River's beautiful clear water rivers that, yeah, we access them raft or there's even some walk and wait options for cod. And we are, we're in the country here. I mean, I don't want anyone visualizing, you know, visualizing this as a city fishery. No, it's not. It's, yeah, it's Australian bush through and through. Totally. I love it. You're a country boy to the heart. <laughs> but even, yeah. even that, like from Sydney, you could fly down and be here within an hour. Melbourne, like I drive up all the time, did it today, three hours, and you're like in the... You feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, 
but there's an airport and you know like it's it's not that far away so i feel so dumb that it's taken me three years to get here <laughs> i mean and, and this history coincides with new zealand too so yeah. november december january is a pretty good time yeah oh well, cod season opens december Okay. Yeah, we respect the fishery. We won't chase them during the close season because that's our time to spawn and do their thing. And just all oh, summer months is prime months. Um, the season's open December through to the end of August. That being said, they get. I'm the first one to admit is when it gets cold, they shut down. Yeah. So you got to work a lot harder for them. So if you have a New Zealand trip planned, it's only three hours away. Yeah. Super close. Yeah. yeah. You can get some flights for like a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. Get on it, people. Um, <laughs> is there you. anything you would like to add or ask me? What did you think? Like we've seen some – like I've seen one of the coolest takes from a cod I've seen in a long time for you. That was probably – to see it to happen that way that it was pretty good. But, yeah, what do you think is the coolest thing about this fishery? Well, that one fish that absolutely smoked me and I, yeah. and I dropped it. Yeah. Scared the shit out of me. <laughs> and that does not happen very often. No. It just, I, I didn't, I think because my first take was so subtle. Yeah. And that was so rare for you to see it be so subtle. Yeah. That when one actually took my fly like they usually do, I didn't expect them to be, I mean, it was like a freight train. Yeah. Um, it was a, yeah, it was a much better fish. Unbelievable. And, and I also didn't expect them to be so active on top water. Yeah, as soon as low light periods. Mm-hmm. And we do get, every now and again, we get, a lot of cicadas along in the trees, and that'll keep fish looking up all day, all summer long. And yeah, yeah, every every few years we we get that, and you can get pull fish on surface. But, but yeah, and I, and I think that the most interesting thing for me, honestly, Cam, is the first day you took me to the most beautiful. I mean, it looked like it almost that river looked a little bit like an Arkansas. Remember, I kept saying it reminded me of Arkansas. It looked like one of the the creeks in the Ozarks. Yeah, it was so beautiful and meandering and. It'd be all valleys, and then it'd be it'd get wide, and then it would get narrow, and then there'd be this cool rock drop, and just so scenic. And then the next day to go to this lake where it's basically the spookiest, most haunted sort of lake with all these deadheads. It really feels like it, again, it's like Dorado, where you can go to Bolivia and fish the the clear streams, and you can go fish the crazy dams in Argentina. So. To me, it's just really cool that it's so – you cannot get bored fishing for them. And knowing that there's nowhere else in the world you can go get them is extremely special. Mm. And uh, and they're indigenous. Like these things, they're dinosaurs kind of. Yeah. They're really, really special. And, and I think for me, knowing that it's kind of – this is kind of the st- – I feel in my gut. And because I've already made the historical reference to the podcast, I, I do think that you're going to see this fishery pick up international recognition. That's what I think. Hmm. And I think kind of being there, I say at the beginning, and all the old guys who listen to this from Australia are going to be like, who's this Sheila from Canada? <laughs> We've been fishing for these, you know, for 50 years, 100 years, whatever. But hmm. I think for the rest of the world, you're really going to see it pick up. And that's cool for me well, that's to what, tell that. That's what we need. Yeah. If we, if, well, that's what we need governments or bigger governments departments to say oh actually there is a dollar value on that fishery we we need to protect it and and that's been seen the world over with other really good performing fisheries until you can put a dollar value on it and which is a tourist dollar yeah that's when we we, you really start to see things happening and if i could get researchers back doing what i used to do yeah that'd be a really cool outcome too so yeah 
Well, you've won me over. So if you guys ever need anything down here, just let me know. Thank you. We just want you to come back here. And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Please take a moment to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes. <laughs>